topic this morning is trials, temptation, and truth. Trials, temptation, and truth. And you may be asking, well, why the title of this sermon? Well, first, let us recall what James, by the grace of God, labored to do for the church, the scattered believers who were persecuted, and what the Lord is saying to us today. We said that the theme of this book and the objective is to encourage authentic Christian living, to encourage authentic, genuine Christian living in every aspect of life. We have observed that trials are God's testing grounds for His people. They are a necessary part of living in a sinful world, but greater than that, God has ordained them as refining instruments. And so we know that trials are God's means for our good. But now as we have left verse 12 last week that said, Blessed is the man who perseveres on the trial for once. He has been approved. That speaks of the results of the trial in purifying and sanctifying him or her. Uh, this brother, sister in Christ will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. But now we reach a section in James 1, where trials and temptations are brought into question, but also what is brought into question is the truthfulness of God, God's truthfulness. Can you trust God and our temptations from God? So what comes into play is truth, God's revealed truth, which we'll also observe in Verses 13 through 18 are three principles that you have to consider as James uh, is fleshing out life under God's authority in Christ. One of those principles is how you view the Word of God above the words of man. How you view the Word of God or the words of God above the words of man. And that includes you, how you view God's Word above your words or even your own thoughts. Another important principle is your understanding and trust in the character of God. Your understanding and your trust in the character of God. If God is good, then, then God is all good. If there's anything in God that is not good, then God is totally corrupt. God cannot be partially good or almost always good and then sometimes not good or evil or corrupt. God must be in his fullness pure, in his fullness true for him to be God. And so what is brought into question is the character of God. That is true earlier in James 1 when we ask in faith, verse 6, for wisdom in trials, it says we must ask in faith, doubting nothing, doubting nothing about God, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea. So when we ask God, we must believe that God gives generously without reproach. We must believe that God is always good, even though the trial does not always feel good. Another principle is noting the difference or knowing the difference between a trial and a temptation to sin. Knowing the difference between a trial that God is using the trials the testing to refine and to reveal. This to refine you, that is to sanctify you, make you more like Christ, but also to reveal the genuineness uh, of your faith. 
But there's a difference between the trial and the temptation. The trial is something that is outside that God may use. The temptation is something uh, from within your heart. Uh, That third principle is going to have an impact on the reading of this, the entirety of this book. For example, if anyone thinks himself to be religious while not bridling his tongue but deceiving his own heart, in verse 26, this man's religion is worthless. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Partiality or being impartial. Are you tempted towards partiality? Then you're showing personal favoritism, as James says. You're tempted in chapter 2 to show a preferential or give preferential treatment to someone else. And you're not partial, impartial across the board. What about chapter 3? In the tongue. Well, James 1 says if you can bridle your tongue, you're able to control the whole body. James chapter 3 says that you cannot. Apart from God's grace and God's strength, the tongue cannot be tamed. So you may be tempted as you go through the trial to use your tongue sinfully, to use your words sinfully. And then chapter 3 and chapter 4, you can look at the end of chapter 3 going into verse 5 or 6 of chapter 4. There's the wisdom from above, then the wisdom from below. Then depending on which wisdom you're engaging, that's going to affect your response or your reaction. So you could be tempted to use worldly wisdom, fleshly wisdom that is demonic, and then that produces all forms of sinful conflict and contention as opposed to being a peacemaker. You are a peacebreaker, a peace destroyer. You are not gentle. Uh, you are not submissive and full of mercy. You're full of conflict and war and contentiousness. You are as what the Scripture says, pugnacious. You are a fighter. So you are, you'll be tempted to do those things because it comes from within. So even as God is using the trial to sanctify you, those inner sins and the temptations of the heart can do the opposite. Now what, what is the core of this text as we look at James 1 verses 13 through 18? Well, a very important matter that we have to consider is our thoughts about God. Our thoughts about God. So this is what we should take away from the sermon this morning. If God is the fountain of all that is good, then he is never the source of your temptation to sin. If God is the fountain of all that is good, then he is never the source of your temptation to sin. Follow along as I read, beginning with verse 12. Of James 1, conclude verse 18. James 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres on the trial, for once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. 
Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. If God is the fountain of all that is good, then he is never the source of your temptation to sin. I want you to note number one as an outline. This is based on the command in verse 13, never believe God is the source of your sinful desires. Never believe God is the source of your sinful desires. And the reason is God is not acquainted with evil. God never tempts anyone with evil. You are tempted from the heart. You're tempted from the heart. And this is a very emphatic command in verse 13. This is confronting hypocrisy, duplicity. This is addressing double-mindedness. You cannot have a a single thought about God and a conflicting thought about God. God is either good, generous, He will give without reproach. He loves to give. He gives good things and He gives what we need for trials. Either God, He is good or He's not good. If God is the source of your temptation to sin, that is, and this is what the text is indicating, it's temptation to sin. Through the trial, which is for your good, the trial is for your sanctification, the trial is for your maturity, the trial is God's path to future glory. So the trials that we go through are preparing us for a future endless eternity of worship and fellowship with the triune God. God uses trials for that purpose and with that intent in mind. That means if the end is good, the process leading to the end is very good. So there can be no in-between. So we cannot conclude that God is using this trial to awaken temptation towards sin. He's not the source of the temptation. So I'm saying never say this, that when you're tempted, that God is the tempter. The sense here is this progressive activity by God, that every time I'm tempted in a trial, God is the one always tempting me in the trial. So there's this persistency of thought that is contrary to the character of God, but it is a consistent conviction that James says you ought not to have. He's not to blame. He's not at fault. It is your sins. Instead of using, therefore, the trial for good, the trial to triumph in Christ the trial to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, the trial is used now as a weapon that is afflicting us and tempting us to sin. And James says, no, that's not from God. Rather, this trial is revealing a problem of 
the heart. It's revealing sin of the heart. You remember what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ said about temptations and the source of these issues. And the context was in dealing with the Pharisees. The Pharisees said in Matthew 15, they came to Jesus and said, Your disciples, why do they break the tradition? And notice the tradition of the elders. They were more concerned about traditions than truth. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. I mean, quite frankly, that's probably a good idea, right? You would prefer someone to grab bread. I mean, imagine bread in a basket. We all have to have the hands on it. I've always had that running thought in communion with the open basket. Like, who touched my bread? Of course, that's probably not a very healthy meditation in a communion. Someone said, no, you're right. You caught me. Not focused on the Lord, huh? But Jesus answered and says, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father and mother, now this is a violation of God's clear command. Whatever you might benefit from me is given. And the LSB says it's given to God as a gift, but that's not acceptable if it comes at the cost of father and mother because they are overriding the word of God. So Jesus said, and he need not honor his father, and by this you invalidated, this is incredible, invalidated the word of God for the sake of your traditions. Tradition, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now here's the profundity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here's the God-man addressing the real issue. Verse 10 of Matthew 15, after Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. And then the Pharisee, then the disciples, that is, the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind, and if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Now here's some more help for us. Verse 15 of Matthew 15. Now Peter answered and said to him, Explain the parable to us. And Jesus said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and goes into the sewer? But the things that proceed out of the mouth comes from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart, that is the, the inner man, the innermost part of a person's personality, uh, to include their thoughts, their will, their emotion, the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witness, slanders. 
These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Of course, we realize the context is dealing with eating with unwashed hands, but Jesus provides a very critical analysis of the human condition. The human condition is that the issues of sin flow from the heart. So whenever we're tempted to sin, it is revealing a sinful heart issue, that there's a problem in the heart. The trials should be maturing us, sanctifying us, conforming us to Christ, needing us from one step of glory to another. Instead, we're taking steps backwards and yielding to the temptation because there's an issue of the heart. Well, James, it says that you're not being tempted by God. Jesus says this temptation comes from the heart. But now, why is that true? Why is that true in our text? Well, James says, He gives two reasons in verse 13. God cannot be tempted by evil, number one. And number two, he himself does not tempt anyone. Because it is in God's nature to do good, is my paraphrase of this in verse 13, Because it is in God's nature to do good, it is not in his nature to tempt anyone toward what is not good. Because it is in his nature to do what is right, it is not in his nature to do what is not right or to encourage someone to do what is not right. It's just not in God's nature. It's not in his character. He will not. Because it is not in his character. He's impervious to it. God has perfect knowledge of sin and temptation, but it's not a part of his nature. It's foreign to him experientially. And God never does anything that will compromise his character who he is. He never tempts anyone with evil because he's not acquainted with it. James says rather that you and I are tempted from the heart. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Now we do want to make this clear. That temptation of itself is not a problem. You can be tempted and not sin. Our Savior was tempted like we were and are. Of course, he was sinless and he did not sin. It is what you do with the temptation. It's how you respond to the temptation. It's whether or not you are going to entertain that temptation. But what is consistently true with us, 
not with Christ, but with us, because he was tempted from the outside. This temptation is an inner temptation, and it's an inner compulsion. It is an inner desire. And James says we're tempted and we're carried away and enticed by our lust. This lust is a, a deep desire to do what God prohibits, to pursue what God says no to, to refuse the good and run to the evil. It was the word carried away was used when Paul the apostle was carried away forcefully. In James chapter 2, verse 6, it is the rich who oppress the believers and drag them, carry them away into court. This is a very aggressive term. It almost pictures a person is helpless. Of course, we know that we're responsible for our sins, but this temptation, when we give into it and we're carried away by it, becomes such a snare that we're caught up with it and enticed, lured away by our lust. Some say that this, the terminology here has to do uh, with the world of the fishing or a fishery, that the fish is carried away, distracted by this attractive bait, by this luring bait, and, and then it's enticed, it's almost as if it's hypnotized by the bait. And then what's next? It seizes the bait. Verse 15 says that when lust has conceived. So you have the temptation, you're carried away, and then you have conception. And you give into the sin, you surrender to the sin, it gives birth. It gives birth to a child. Whatever that sin is, whether it is anger, immorality, slander, falsely judging believers, falsely judging God, a variation of those sins are in this very letter, James. When you have that thought, when that thought comes to your mind, about God. And the trial is so overbearing. It is so burdensome. And it's pressing upon you. That pressure is going to squeeze out of you what was always there. If you have thoughts about God and the pressure comes and it squeezes it out and you're like, oh, I didn't know I thought about God that way. There was a, a young man who went through a, a very challenging time, and um, he said it was so difficult that he began to wonder about God's goodness and if God really cared. I wish I was able to talk to him. I just read it. He's not necessarily a celebrity, but plays in professional sports. 
It's amazing that he didn't even think to audit his words. To realize that when you go from that point to thinking it, to believing it, and almost saying it as if it's a testimony without confessing your sin, you're only exercising unbelief. James says that when you come to God, you must ask in faith, doubting nothing about the character and the nature of God. You may have some questions for God, but that will not be one of them. You may have some concerns to take to God, but you will not have a concern about the character of God. For those who come to God must what believe that He is. That He's a reward of those who diligently seek Him. We referenced that in Hebrews 11 earlier from James. It's one thing to have doubts, but to entertain doubts about God sets you in the category of unbelief. Now this is not always palatable, but when famous people like athletes will go up and say that stuff, you wonder if they represent the masses. I believe you say, well, you know, I, I really question God's goodness about my salvation. Listen, God can run you through the, the ringer in this world as long as your reward is in heaven. But if you don't believe your reward is in heaven, if you don't think of a glorious future to come, you're talking to the wrong God. That's not the God of the Bible. You understand, dear saints? Our thoughts about God, they are a reflection of our knowledge of this God and our faith in Him. If you have the wrong thoughts about the God of the Bible, then you don't worship the God of the Bible. says, well, I, I just lost hope and confidence in him. Well, James says that a double-minded man, and I'll take the King James Version, a double-minded man is un, what? Stable. And trials tend to produce a sense of in, what? Stability. Right? Just uneasiness, the wrong kind of butterflies, right? the, the wrong kind of nerves, the, the nerves that kick in can lead to a nervous breakdown, as the world would say it. They have a tendency of doing that. And when we're double-minded, it doesn't get better, it gets worse. Because now all these issues are happening, someone's going to have to feel, they're going to have to feel the brunt of my frustration, anger, disappointment, sadness, and all those things. And you realize that in James, it's intertwined with the believers in the fellowship. You're speaking evil of others. You're judging others, slandering other believers. Boy, trials have a tendency of doing that, don't, don't they? Oh, don't let a brother, sister in Christ really hurt you. Whew. It's coming. It's not going to be the wisdom from above. It's going to be the worldly wisdom. 
It's double-mindedness is what it is. It's a foot in spiritual things and another foot in the world. You are divided in mind, divided in heart, divided in intent. And so the trial reveals the divided heart. It reveals the lack of sincerity toward God. And remember, dear saints, it's, you're going to have the struggles. You'll, you'll have your roller coaster rides. Sometimes roller coaster rides can be nauseous and nauseating because they're so difficult. But even as you're going in that emotional roller coaster and you feel the turbulence, it's pressing upon you. One thing can remain the same. It is God. God. Well, let's not mistake. This, this is not a treatment on how temptations come and what happens. That's true. This is about trials, temptation, and the character of God. It's about truth. It's about how you believe what you believe when you're in the trial. It's about God. It's about your trust in his goodness, in his faithfulness to do what is right. Verse 15 says, When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. So he has the birthing of sin. Uh, one commentator said, you, you don't only have a child here, but you have a grandchild. In other words, this is a family line, an ancestral legacy of sin and death. Your family is sin and death. That may be true. Sinclair Ferguson lays out the ungodly progression here. He says it starts with a temptation. And then from temptation, temptation it moves to an attraction. And from that attraction to deception. And then preoccupation. You're caught up with that. You're, you're drawn away and you're enticed. And in that moment, the sin, the sin feels much better than God's alternative. It just, there's something warming about that sin. It's when I, when I just get it off my chest, I feel better. Now I can pick up my Bible and read it. It just feels right. I've got to get this done. If I don't, things won't go well. I, if I don't let this off, I have to take the pressure pill, so I might as well do that, then go to God. It, it has a way of, of, of trying to negotiate. The fish looks at the bait and says, well, you know, I have all the other school of fish here. They're not doing it, but that bait looks good. Plus, I'm hungry. No one's helping me. No one's feeding me. I'm preoccupied. I'm going to eat it. Preoccupation goes to conception. In other words, you, and notice this, you're, you're bringing something into the world. You're conceiving, but also now you're delivering this child. Of course, remember, these are metaphors. Please remember, these are metaphors, right? Right, spiritual analogies. Right. Men can't have babies. Only women can. I know we have to say this 21st century. Now we got that cleared. You're delivering sin, giving birth to sin. Okay, here's a critical, critical crossroad. If it is in God's nature to do good, 
And it is not in God's nature to tempt anyone to sin. And if he says temptation is come, comes from God, then God is helping to deliver the baby? That can't be true because in verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. Very same root word for birthing is in verse 18. God, it will be hypocritical and duplicitous for God to help with the sin and, and enable to be born again. Notice, it's, it's like I am going to kill a baby and give another baby life. Just, it doesn't fit his character. It doesn't fit his nature. God is sincere and he's undivided. He's undivided in his infinite greatness. I was going to use his totality. I don't like that word because you can't add him up. I know sometimes theologians use the, the sum of his attributes. The word sum doesn't fit God very well. He's infinite in everything. So words are sometimes hard to find when you think of the infinite greatness of God. But because of that, he's not confusing. He's not going to waffle. You, you, may have, you may have some people you know like that, some friends like that. It's not, you're not like this. So this illustration doesn't fit you at all. I am so sure of that. That they, they just can't make a decision. The the simplest of decisions. We're going to, what are we going to eat today after service? Oh, I don't know. Just, just pick a place. I'm hungry. Just, just find something. They're indecisive. That's not God. God gives birth to life, not death. Truth. Well, Sinclair Ferguson goes on to say it goes from conception to subjection. In other words, you are under the very authority of that sin and then desperation. Now that sin becomes the urgent matter and not righteousness. This is deadly. The trial, James says, brings about perseverance. And then it says, you should let it have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's what God does in the trial. Then he gives wisdom in the trial. Your temptation does the opposite. It is a soul destroyer. Now, You know, maybe you can make an honest admission that you have not held the best thoughts about God in trials or in general. Your thoughts about God have not always been what they should be. There is a section at the end of, near the end of James. Let me encourage you to consider this. 
James mentions the value and the necessity of prayer. If you believe at times that, that God may be the source of your sinful desires because you say, well, I'm trying and here they come. Every time this trial comes or these trials come, I seem to give into them. It has to be a correlation between the two. You know those thoughts are wrong. God is not acquainted with evil. He never tempts anyone with evil. You're tempted from the heart, but you have sinned against God as a believer. I mean, if you're here among us, you're an unbeliever. That's your pattern of life. You're going to always have these thoughts more often than not about God. And you find this to be true when disasters happen. You notice if it's going to be believers and unbelievers, quickly, disasters. When thousands of people die. And even those who didn't believe in God, they would say, if God is good, why? Now, I hope you know this, dear saints, that that is not the question of a Christian, okay? It is not a, it's not Christianese, not, nor is it biblical, To say, if God is good, then why? Now, we can desire to know God's purpose in these moments and seek to know those things, but it should never be juxtaposed or placed parallel with God's goodness in the question, why? That's double-mindedness. God is good when it's sunny and the weather is fair. As I might say in other parts of the world, or it's a monsoon in L.A. in the form of light rain and drizzle. Whatever the case may be, God is always good. Now, I'm only presenting this to you because these issues, these thoughts of the mind, the temptation to think and to ask, is a part of the problem in James. Because we not only sin uh, indeed, but we sin in our thoughts. And if we're always entertaining that question of if he is good, then why? Then we're questioning the character of God. That's double-mindedness. So as believers, these sins must be mortified because from our heart, but also the habit of life and the habit of the world around us, Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And when you have an alliance and whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. So words that are contrary to the character of God are hostile to him. So now you've made yourself an enemy. If you're a believer, you don't want to do that. You may have had your moments of just, just deep discouragement and despair. And you, you said the wrong things, asked the wrong questions. Um... You know, James says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. That is an encouragement from this text. Ask God's people for help. Ask the leaders for help. Ask me for help in prayer. Be willing to acknowledge that you have not had the best thoughts about God. You have accused him sinfully and wrongfully. Pray. Jesus encouraged the disciples in Matthew 26 as he was pleading to the Father to remove the cup of this wrath that we deserve 
He walks up from his prayer, goes to the disciples, and, and he says, pray that you do not enter temptation. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Prayer. Prayer. If you think about our Savior's words in Matthew chapter 6, and teaching the disciples the prayer, and they said, he said, say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Of course, we know that is not a conflict with James 1. What it is, is when we admit our weakness. We need to be rescued. Because we have the habit of giving in to our temptation. And that passage in Mark, Matthew 6, Leon Morris wrote, and I quote, The worshiper knows his own weakness, and in this prayer seeks to be kept far from anything that may bring him to sin. You know, one of the challenges that we have as we even work through passages like this is given the world we live in where there's a gross insensitivity towards sin, we can easily trifle over our sins. Now, I'm not saying this from the standpoint of eternal life and salvation, but from the standpoint of holy living. We trifle over our sins. There's, there's no more brokenness. There's no more sorrow. There's, the confessions are confession light. You ever heard of that one? Taste great, less filling? Confession light is, oh, I'm sorry, or must have been a bad day. You, you have an introduction to your kind of, please kind of forgive me kind of, I'm asking you, my brother says, you know what I mean? It's, you have all these prefaces, these sinful prefaces. We are in a world where sin is magnified, and God in his righteousness is vilified. Once again, friendship with the world, and you rub shoulders with the world long enough, and you say, oh, well, I I'm, don't say what they say. I don't do what they do. And, and the margin of sin continues to grow. Where is the reference point? The reference point for the Christian is the very character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not some type of a legalistic mumbo-jumbo. This is dealing with heart-to-heart issues when it comes to following Christ. That God is not only concerned about our sanctification, but he's made provisions for it. And this is a part of it here, your thoughts about God. If you need help you find yourself discouraged in your discouragement, you give in to your sins more than to the Word of God. Go to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But ask God for forgiveness. Expose that sin. Have no fellowship with it. Denounce it. Detest it. Put it off. And develop the right thoughts about God. The right thoughts about God. Because as the text commands us, never believe God is the source of your sinful desires in verses 16 through 18. Always believe God is the source of goodness in life. Always believe that God is the source of goodness in life. Why, once more, 
let me re- reiterate, because God works according to his nature. Now, we have a new nature in Christ, but we still have the effects of that old man, that old body of sin, so we tend sometimes to fall into the habit of this old sinful nature, but not God. He's absolutely perfect in all his ways. Verse 16. I'm saying it in a positive way. James is reinforcing it with this prohibition not to do this. Do not be deceived. He's very affectionate. My beloved brothers. This is a loving, affectionate appeal. It's authoritative. But he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. In other words, don't allow yourself to be deceived. It's, it's your fault. It's on you. But don't let it happen, my beloved. You're responsible, not God. Don't let it continue. You yourself do not continue into this. You know, our Savior used this, this word, deception, And it really has to do with the fact of don't act as if you don't know. But our Savior used this in Matthew 22, verse 29, Matthew 22, verse 29, when he accused the Sadducees because they did not know Scripture or the power of God. So there is a sense to which you can gather from this section that you should not be deceived because you have access to the Scripture You should also be aware of the power of God because in verse 18, it's the power of God that brought you to a place of salvation. So the self-deception is the result of wrong thoughts about God and then wrong thoughts about ourselves. Right? We, We think it comes from God. It's a wrong thought about God. We fail to realize that the issues are from with the heart. Wrong thoughts about ourselves. So once more, beloved, this is a matter of of our faith, our confidence in God, to believe God is at fault and that we are free of responsibility is self-induced deception because God has not revealed it that way. God is the source and the fountain of all good things because that is rooted in his nature. And that is what verse 17 is revealing that God is the source and fountain of all good things because that is rooted in his nature. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So with God, he, within his absolute perfection, possesses eternally, and unchangingly, what we do not have. So you can't import thoughts about yourself and even reliable people upon God. God is infinitely reliable. So everything good, everything perfect comes from Him. It says it's from above. And uh, when... The reference is made to what is perfect. It means that there are no impurities there. Think about that, dear saints, in relation to this text. We, we don't want to miss the essence of what God is appealing uh, through James. Think about this in relation to trials. 
If trials are for your good, what should your thoughts be in that trial? And what should your thoughts be about God in the trial? God gives with no impurities, with no mixed motives. His, his motives are always pure. His intentions are always good. His will is always righteous and perfect. So here you are in this trial, and it's ugly, and it's difficult, and it is frustrating, and it's poking at every part of your being. There's almost nothing left to touch. It affects your mind, your thoughts, your, your drain, as the psalmist often was, uh, through the trial and the hardship. And all of that could be true. But what is equally true, or even greater in its truth, is who God is even in that trial. Because remember that trial God uses to mature you. It's a test that leads you to glory. It's a trial that refines you and removes impurities of of sin and and even sinful motives, continues to channel your affection to Christ and his return and the future glory. And you're not looking to succeed in this world, but to triumph in Christ in this world no matter what God has ordained for you. That's what the trial does. That means that the trials... are God's perfect gift for you. Whoa. Hold on now. You may say, that sounds like a biblical hyperbole. Um, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. God is using that trial for your good. It's like taking, and I can't do it. I've seen it done before, and that's all I wanted was just see it. You ever seen someone take a old, worn-out parts of a car? The car is a 1946. I don't even want to say a Mustang because maybe they didn't even make it back then. So I don't want to just wax with ignorance. But just is one of those class, old classics. And, and you look at it and you're like, that looks like a pile of junk. And I've always considered in, especially in Southern California as I've driven, if you drive like five miles, you can probably put a car together. That's the first thing, because there are always so many car parts at the end of the road. And you look at this, this pile and this, yeah, he, I ordered this from there, I got it from here, and all he has is a frame. Just How is it possible for you to make a car from this and it looks like an old classic? How is it possible? All you have is a shell. It's worth nothing. But that's how God transforms trials. They seem meaningless, a waste of time. You could do other things with your time. Instead of going to the Word and, and crying and weeping and tears over the Word of God, you could do a lot of other things. 
And God takes that trial and He sets it apart as a gift for your eternal good. Therefore, the trial becomes a gift because God sanctifies it, sets it apart, as he did the old vessels in the Old Testament that may have been unclean, and what God, he cleans the, those vessels, and he tells them, this vessel now has been sanctified for temple worship. Dear saints, any trial that God attaches to our lives has been sanctified or set apart for his use, so it's good. It's a gift. Now, does this challenge our thoughts? Yes, I think just on a basic level, sinners say by the grace of God. That's a disadvantage. And then we live in this modern culture of accessories and, and the pursuit of false happiness and worldly comforts. And because of that, we're not trained to see that these are precious tools from the hands of a good God for our good. And so we become militant toward it. But when you become militant toward anything that God gives you, whether it is the treasures or the trials, I mean, God, you think, blesses you with a, a decent car, and you tell your friends, oh, it's a blessing from the Lord. All right. We should give thanks for everything. Hey, let me ask you a question. What about that trial? What about that trial? What is it? A curse from God? Help me out. Dear saints, remember this, God will not use anything that violates his character. So it has to be for good. When trials are brought into your life. I mean, you don't hear those all the time, do you? Yes, someone, hey, how you doing, brother? So, man, the Lord's really sanctified me and blessed me with this trial. I, I did not be more like Christ through this trial. But boy, he has used it. Only God's wisdom can produce that. Um, that is the opposite of being self-deceived. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. It it speaks from a a source outside of us, from the heavenlies, and then it makes it clear who it comes from. It comes from the Father of lights. 1 John 1 verse 5 says that God is light in him. There is no, no darkness at all or whatsoever. There is none. The light can speak of God's creation power. It can speak of radiance, what is clean, what is pure, what illuminates. All of those may be true. This is just a reference to the character of God. So psalmist says, in your light we see light. Wherever you see God or wherever God's presence is, not in the visible sense, but wherever God's presence is, There is light, there is truth, there is goodness, there is peace, there is joy, there is satisfaction. And then there is a resolute Christian in the trial because the Father of lights is there. And then it says, in in using the luminaries, the, the sun and the moon and the stars, it makes a reference to who God is in light of those luminaries, the sun. And the moon, you may see shadows from 
those created things. But there's not a drop or a sign of shadow with God. There's no darkness. There's no confusion. None of that is there with God. God is pure light, pure truth, pure love, pure goodness, pure holiness, and His will is pure. So there's not even a hint of darkness in, in the trial that God uses. There's, there are no hidden motives, no evil motives, no duplicitous motive. God is not double-minded. He doesn't have two plans for one person. He's the same as Christ is in his divine deity, the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is a reflection of the Father. Now, what this verse, as we conclude this section, if you to always believe that God is the source of goodness and life, God is the source and the fountain of all things good, that is rooted in his nature. But then, as you look at verse 18, God's goodness is displayed in salvation. His goodness is displayed in salvation. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Now, if God is good, if he's perfect, if he's pure light, pure truth, pure goodness, right, then in the exercise of his will, it is pure. It says he brought us forth by the word of truth. What is that, dear saints? It is through the preaching of of Christ, the gospel that God birthed us, that has regenerated us, and gave us new life. It's by the word of truth. Well, what is the word of truth? It is, it is a word about Christ, but another passage of Scripture, the word of truth also applied just to the word of God in general. I believe in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it is a general description of all Scripture. And so in a streamlined way, the word of truth begins with the gospel, but it expands to all of God's word. So if all of God's word is, is pure and true, then all of God's doing, pure and true, there can be no impurities in God. And that is seen in how he displayed his goodness in saving us. So if he brought us forth this new birth in salvation for holy living and sanctification, why in the world would a holy God jeopardize his good work? I'm going to set some sinful stumbling blocks on my leg so they can stumble and tumble into eternity. No. Not at all. The word, in fact, will is, is rich. In Hebrews 6, verse 17, the word for will is a word desire. And it is God's desire in Hebrews 6, 17, to display the unchangeable character of his promise. So when God reveals his will to his people, what comes with God's will is his character. It's attached to his character. And so God's will is to give new birth, to sanctify but the counter is our sinful temptation and will to give birth to sin. God gives birth to new life and sanctification by the washing of the Word. That's His will. 
And it says that in the exercise of his divine prerogative, his sovereign will, this is God's choosing, it's God's elective choice. Once more, this is not uh, God looking and peeping into the future and says, that's a good prospect. Let's save them. There's a good chance they'll remain saved. No, God saves wretched sinners out of his own choosing, his own goodness, his own will, his own desire. And he brought us to this new birth. Not for us to conceive and birth sin. No, it says so that this is the purpose. We will be a kind of first fruit among his creatures. What are the first fruits here? Well, this is an analogy taken from the Old Testament times, and Deuteronomy 26 also illustrates that, that God's people brought the first of their harvest to God, and also the first animal that came out of the mother would be offered to God. The firstborn, a child, was also offered to God through an animal sacrifice. So the first of everything was dedicated only to God. You see what's happening here in this text, dear saints? As a first fruit, now that is applied metaphorically or figuratively to the church or to believers. Believers are the first fruits among his new creation. God's first fruits among the new creation is a deposit, a guarantee of the future new creation. Perfect, absolute righteousness in the world to come. But you know, God, because he's so good, he's so holy, he's not like, I'll just rather wait until that time comes. No, 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 you are his workmanship. Ephesians 2 verse 10, those who are in Christ Remember, you have been saved by grace through faith. It is not of yourself. It's the gift of God. In case you didn't get it, Paul said it once again, not of works, lest anyone would boast. It's all of grace that saves you, but also it is all of grace that enables you to pursue righteous living, for you are his workmanship. Here it is, created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, that God has ordained for you to walk in them. So, God is not in the business of tempting his first fruits to sin because his first fruits are a sign of the future glory. Now, you realize, dear saints, why sin ought not to be taken lightly in the church. Let's take a quick commercial break and discuss this as grown people. We cannot harbor persistent sin in local fellowship because God is dealing with sin on every level. He's sanctifying his saints. He's purifying his elect. And then he's exposing his non-elect, or the non-elect. The first fruit among his creatures stresses then the value and the treasure of holy living that we are displaying to the world of a future of endless and sinless perfection. We're displayed to the world. And you say, well, why did God use us? That's amazing grace. You heard that song, right? Sweet the song that saved the wretch like me. It's, it's just amazing. No one is qualified. No one is eligible. No one is righteous. No one seeks after God. 
We're turning from God and not to him in our sin. God pursues the rebel, and he hunts down the fugitive, and he brings the gospel to them. He saves them. He calls them. And I think you can agree that there are some unbelievers who ethically and morally do a much better job than we do sometimes, and they're not saved. There's some more decent people that God could have saved other than me. We're done a much better job as a Christian, as a husband, as a father. They would do a much better job preaching than I would. They would have been done 10 minutes ago. That's the one good thing they probably would have done. But as we heard at the conference this week, that God uses the weak, the despised, the scums of the earth, to confound the wise so that no man may boast. And here we are, by the grace of God, his first fruits, according to sovereign election, that God calls us to salvation and says, I want you to represent me. As lousy as we are with it at times, as unfaithful as we are, he still says that you are my first fruits. And you display before the world that in the future, this this is my harvest. From even the past, in the immediate future, harvest of sinners who will display my great grace and salvation. Well, thinking that as your first fruit, it should give you adoration and, and thanksgiving to God. That you have been chosen to be a kind of first fruits among his creation. What they're saying is, you consider this text of Scripture, we talked about the sermon takeaway. If God is a fountain of all that is good, then he's never the source of your temptation to sin. Never the source of your temptation to sin. And the reason you can believe that is that God's word is his power into salvation, God's word is his power in sanctification. And God's word is his promise of future glorification. Now, earlier I mentioned the importance of prayer from Matthew 6 and uh, Matthew 26. But I want to encourage you even more from what uh, Hebrews says about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know that if you consider, as you turn to Hebrews chapter 2, what our Savior said in response to the temptations that the adversary uh, hurled his way, uh, that he used the Word of God. And dear saints, I encourage you to do the same, use the Scriptures. But notice what the Scripture says here about our Savior. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things. Why? Here's, a, here's the reason. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that, we, in that which he has suffered, he's able to help, there it is, help those who are tempted. You're not alone. Uh, you say, well, I feel like I've gone too far sometimes. Run to the cross. Renew yourself at the cross practice going there every day. 
meditate on the cross, rehearse the gospel, remember that God saves sinners and that's you. You're eligible. You're the one. Remember how merciful and compassionate your Savior is and how merciful your Father is. Don't let the temptation produce a child and a grandchild into the second or third generation of sin. Don't let it escalate. Run to the cross. Remember the Savior and also in Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There it is. James mentioned prayer, and that, I think, is a part of what Hebrews is encouraging also. But it's also running to Christ, confident in his faithfulness to forgive, confident in his goodness, confident in his mercy, confident in his kindness, so that you will not be led in the temptation, but that you'll be delivered from the temptation and mature in the trial. If God is the fountain of all that is good, then he's never the source of your temptation. So never believe that God is the source of your sinful desires. And always believe that God is the source of goodness and life. Pray with me there, saints, as we go before our Lord. Father, thank you so much for the encouragement that we received in realizing our own sin And how often we have yielded to the temptation to sin as opposed to submitting to you and bearing up confident in you in the trial. And that even if we've done that in the trial, that you're faithful to to uphold us and sustain us and to strengthen us afresh. I pray that we will have the right thoughts about you, O great Father, the right attitude toward Christ, our Savior, and the right disposition of submission to the Holy Spirit so that you may work all things for our good. Thank you for the great gifts for sanctifying a trials which may seem and look like an unclean vessel and setting it apart and giving it to us and saying, this is from my hand. Take it. It is good. It is good. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the covenant of the eternal, through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus, equip you in every good thing to do his will by doing in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen.